So Shane, this is podcast three of the actual astronomy podcast podcast. Um, so how was your week in isolation this week? <laughs> well, you know, still surviving. Um, wasn't able to get out to do any astronomy, uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm not kind of doing astronomy from my chair in my basement. Yeah. Uh, the only difference is I'm usually spending money from the basement. So sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. Yeah. I mean, I've been, uh, I've been able to get it out of, we had, we had one really clear night and it was, I think it was like minus 25 at the wind. It was minus 15 degrees Celsius. And then I think it was 40 kilometer hour winds. So, so that yeah. takes well into, well into the minus twenties. Um, so yeah, we had, we even had some snow this week, which for here is not that unusual, but it's, it's unusual enough to get both snow and, and such cold weather. So I've actually been attending some, uh, some of my astronomy, old astronomy club meetings online. So is that, oh. I attended a, a talk by a couple friends that, that I have from back in Ontario and they were doing one on a trip they had a year or so ago or two years ago now, the last Mars opposition back in July of 2018. Uh, went down and did some observing through the uh, through the Lowell, uh, you know, big Clark refractor there, and uh, so they did a talk on that, which was uh, which was pretty cool. They actually did their own observing session there. They somehow finagled time and went in and and had like uh, I think they said they had from nine or ten p.m. in the evening until two or three o'clock in the morning, and they had staff there on that, but but they pretty much had the run of it. Just uh, I think there was just three of them there that. Uh, that did it wasn't like a public observing session or anything like that it was their own dedicated uh time but of course there was the giant mars uh dust storm uh going on when they went down so so yeah, that's too bad yeah so yeah i mean it's it's been really neat um and i plan to attend uh a few more of those with the with the other clubs i've been involved in uh so yeah my social calendar is actually more full now than it's ever been uh that's <laughs> that's a sad comment on me or, or what, that when we're all forced to stay inside, that's when, that's when I get more active. Um, and then I'm actually going to be a panelist on uh, upcoming uh, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada event. Uh, okay. Which one is that? It's, I don't know what it's called exactly. They, they were going to put it on for the 18th and then they promptly canceled it and said, no, no, we're going to run out of material. And I'm like, I'm not going to run out of um, but it's going to be on, it's going to surround sketching and perception. Uh, oh. and you know, once they kind of work at a, a day and time, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know that it's going to be open to the public. I think they can only take a hundred people into it. And they're trying to figure out some logistics in, in how it can be viewed. Um, but anyway, yeah, it should be, should be pretty neat. I've recently taken up sketching it as you know, in the past four or five years and, have a background in the philosophy of perception as my formal education. So should be, uh, should be kind of interesting. So I know we had a bit of a plan today uh, to talk a little bit about uh, getting started uh, for amateur astronomy or in amateur astronomy. Um, but then I was thinking, you know, maybe we should exercise a few, a few demons and in our sort of preamble, I think you were, you were uh, willing to do that. So yeah, yeah, we'll certainly get back to the the getting started in amateur astronomy. We'll do a couple episodes of of that topic in the future. But um, you know, I think there's some other stuff we could talk about today because uh, we're both considering some some new purchases. I believe. 
Yeah, you know, like you were saying, um, you know, we've been kind of we've been kind of emailing back and forth, uh, not at all about doing this podcast or anything, but uh, looking at some some telescopes, and I'm looking at them out too. So, um, you know, and and I know, like I've I've emailed you some questions, and then I've sent you a bunch of information. I thought we actually probably do need to have a conversation, so maybe we'll just have the conversation. Uh, as a podcast, so um, so what are you looking at, Shane? Maybe you can describe what you're what you're looking at getting. Sure. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. As we covered off, I think in one of our earlier podcasts, um, I've kind of almost become an exclusive uh, refractor observer. Um, you know, I like the images that they present, the wide fields. I could go on and on. Um, and I have a number of refractors that I do use pretty regularly, but I have a hole in my collection, and that is a, a good quality travel refractor of reasonable, you know, or a relatively decent sized aperture. Um, I have a little 61 millimeter William Optics Zenith Star, which is certainly portable and compact and can travel quite nicely um, and provides some outstanding wide field views. Yeah, that's like. Pretty good scope. I got to jump in and say, like yeah. you and I have actually, because I own the Takahashi uh, 60Q slash CB, um, which is the Takahashi 60 millimeter that can be used either in an f5.9, f6 mode as a 355 millimeter focal length, or it can be uh, used with the extender at f10. Um, but as you know, I typically use it out in the wilds at, at the 5.9 setting, but we've actually been able to run them uh, against each other on a few occasions. Yeah, the one night in Grasslands National Park, we had them side by side. I forget what we were looking at, but, you know, I think you had your 40 millimeter Pentex in there and I had my 41 millimeter Panoptic in mind. So, you know, really close in terms of, uh, you know, I guess focal lengths and things like that for the comparison. And it was, that was a fun night. Yeah, it was really neat. And the, the only thing that I really wanted to do since then, and we haven't uh, ever gotten back around to it, uh, just because we've had different gear out on, on the other nights that we've been out, uh, especially down there. You've, you've, I've been bringing my 60, you've been bringing your Genesis, uh, which is like, what, a 101 millimeter uh, Teleview F5.4? Yeah. Is that right? That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, 540 millimeter focal length. Anyway, so you, you bought that, so you've been bringing that out a bit more. So it's kind of fun to have a 60, which is super wide field, then a, a hundred odd millimeter that is that is very wide field as well. Um, but, I, but I think that my telescope, my 60 may have been just marginally dimmer than the William Optics, but the big, uh, the big uh, mitigating factor in that was that I think you were using like a brand new diagonal and I'm using like my battle hardened, you know, having traveled literally uh, around the earth a couple times, uh, Lumicon diagonal, which is awesome, but uh, definitely I think is starting to show it's uh, 14 years uh, at this time. So, uh, you know, one thing I did just sort of to mention something else is I did get that diagonal. That Yeah, that, that new Lumicon. Yeah, but the one they sent me is, it's, I don't know what it is. It's not really like the diagonal that I have. It's missing the nose piece, another nose piece. It's missing the barrel for the eyepiece. Oh, really? So, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, like, they're hard to come by. So I'm thinking that, um, and it has the holes, and it has another, like, adapter. I don't know what the adapter is for, though. It has the holes there. So I'm thinking that that adapter could be removed. Uh, and then the... Um, 
I guess the eyepiece barrel uh, could just be unscrewed from mine and screwed into that because they all have the same holes and everything. I'm sure the screws are the same. Um, so I'm thinking uh, that might be uh, might be a project for the for the future there. So so anyway, yeah, just yeah. Kind, of, kind of a strange thing. But maybe we'll get back to it. What what are yeah. you thinking of buying now for a telescope? So I narrowed it down to two or three choices. Um, whenever you're talking about a highly portable refractor, you can't have the conversation without talking about the Borg line of telescopes. Uh, for anybody not familiar with Borg, they're a very modular style telescope, meaning, you know, you, when you buy a Borg, you don't get a telescope, you get a, a box full of boxes and then you put everything together and, and then you have a telescope, but they're highly adaptable for visual or for astrophotography. Um, and they're constructed using some of the lightest weight materials known to man, I think, because, you know, they have a 90 millimeter uh, refractor, fluorite refractor that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it comes in at around like 1.8 kilos or yeah, exactly. two kilos or something. It's, yeah. it's exceptionally light. So yeah. that one was on my list. I, um, I actually uh, own the largest, the largest, I guess the most recent largest Borg, which is the, uh, 125 S SD, which is 125 millimeter, uh, F six. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with the many, many boxes and the piecing together of, of the equipment to get a, to get a pretty good, uh, reasonably portable telescope. But even, even at eight pounds, um, just the size and eight pounds and, uh, it's still a significant piece of equipment to drag around with you. I, it's just barely grab and go, um, considering mm -hmm. my, my whole setup is probably running close to 30 pounds, uh, which is tripod mount, telescope, rings, some eyepieces, like that's not quite grab and go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to, the, to just have a quick comment about your Borg 125 is the, the optical quality is outstanding. You know, looking through that telescope is, is a true pleasure. And that was one of the reasons also why I thought, uh, or why I had Borg quite high on my list of travel scope considerations. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've often thought of that uh, Borg 90 as well, simply because the 125 is um, just such an excellent scope. I mean, it is unbelievable how good the color correction and uh, star test is on that optic, uh, it's a doublet refractor, um, and usually a five inch doublet running at F6, um, you're gonna have a fair bit of color. Uh, and, and maybe there is a little, but I've run it against uh, Takahashi FS128, uh, which is like museum quality, because that Takahashi FS128 is now in a museum. Um, that is uh, a really good telescope and uh, they're comparable, you know, they were, you know, you really could not really tell the difference, um, like really subtle tonal kind of qualities. But then we've each done a lot of research on the 90FL and it seems like it's not of the same ilk, <laughs> to say the least. Well, yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the biggest thing that I guess maybe cautioned me towards the Borg 90FL is the field curvature that some people report. And, you know, here's maybe where I put out a, my, my 
PSA or, or whatever you want to call it, you know, it, it really is dependent on the observer. Some people are more sensitive to field curvature than others. And, and that goes for a lot of things with telescopes, you know, uh, mount stability. Some people are able to tolerate some vibration, whereas others don't want any. Uh, color perception through a telescope is also very individualistic. Um, but when I heard about the field curvature of the Borg, I steered away because that does bother me a lot. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things I like about refractors is the, you know, super sharp stars across the entire field. And if some of them, you know, if I have to focus them in and out, of, or, you know, adjust the focuser to uh, have tight stars across that field, um, you know, that, that'll drive me nuts. Yeah. And it's one thing like, cause I took one of those ST80 type telescopes, like this is a meat adventure scope uh, last year. And I ripped off the focuser and threw it away and put in a two inch focuser. And then we drop in your 31 Nagler and, and that's amazing. But this is literally like a $200 Canadian anyway, uh, telescope now that gives you this huge field of view. So it's pretty easy to forgive. Uh, any optical defects in in a telescope that costs about a quarter of the cost of the eyepiece that you're using, um, but when you're when you're spending uh, into the thousands of dollars, you you kind of want some pretty good optical performance. Exactly, and and that's one of the reasons why I just didn't want to try the Borg. Like I really wish somebody local had one that I could look through, and then I would be able to determine if it you know was acceptable to my eye. Um, but I'm just not willing to, you know, go spend the close to $2,500 Canadian to see whether or not I can tolerate the field curvature. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too a risky. lot. And like, I know that it uses, uh, and I could be wrong here, but just from, from what I've read on it, it uses the same prescription as the um, old Takahashi Sky Nani, which I have looked through um, on, on a few occasions anyway. A friend had one, a really good observer, Daryl DeWolf back in Nova Scotia. Um, who, who would often be quoted like in Sky and Telescope, like he's a reputable observer. Um, but he bought it and fell out of love with it. Um, mm. And so that was something that some people might, might consider maybe even uh, just a slightly different version of that scope. And that, that's somebody who I know and, and respect quite a bit. So I was, I was still a little hesitant even on that. But I always thought that was a neat telescope. But we were looking at Mars during the big 2003 opposition with the sky and honey and it the the red focus on it definitely was challenged so that's sort of a, a bit of a problem like i really want a telescope that's going to perform well on mars so so yeah so what else were you thinking of maybe getting if so not then i i started to look at the takahashi offerings because you know some of their refractors uh, at least their doublets come in uh, fairly reasonable weight and the one that caught my eye first, because again, I was trying to get the most aperture in the lightest possible package. Uh, so the Takahashi FC100DC uh, suddenly rose to the top of my list. So this is um, a 100 millimeter or just under four inch uh, F7.4 fluorite. Uh, I'm going to say it wrong, but it's like a Stenheiler configuration, I believe. Uh, yes. Which means yeah. that it has the fluorite on the inside. Yeah. As yep. the double goes. And I, I think it comes in exceptionally light for a four inch refractor, like 2.8 kilos. Yeah. 6.1 pounds for, for those yeah. working in pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so probably 
I, I would venture to say the lightest four inch you can buy. Um, now maybe the Borg, whatever theirs is, is the 105 or something like that. Yeah, they've got a 107 that is, yeah. it, it's not much lighter. It's like 2.3 or something like that. Right, right. And, and I believe the Borg is quite a bit more expensive too. Yeah, the Borg is going to run you, I, I forget, but you know, in American dollars anyway, it's getting up close to $4,000, which in Canadian dollars these days is just going to be some sort of obscene amount. In fact, I believe today that would put the Borg 107 um, more than my Borg 125SD cost when I wow. bought it. And, and more than I could probably sell it for use. So I kind of feel like something is a little bit out of alignment there. By the way, I did talk to a couple Borg owners on Clyde Nights and they were adamant that I should sell my Borg 125 SD and, and buy the 107 because they were um, so taken with the 107 when they, when they tried them out. So uh, wow. certainly the Borg um, definitely have made some, uh, some improvements to the design. Oh, and by the way, for those, and I think you're aware of this as well, but uh, Canon Optron, I believe is the name of it, it makes the uh, lenses for both Takahashi and Borg. Yes. Um, they're just, uh, the Takahashis tend to be uh, a little bit longer in focal length and a little bit more optimized towards uh, perhaps, uh, I, I guess, pure color correction and pure optical correction versus the Borg uh, that I think have, have over the years slowly drifted more towards um, actually adding in uh, flatteners and reducers and all this stuff to make their scopes into uh, quadruplet astrographs versus really visual telescopes. The visual being sort of uh, a secondary thing these days, I think in, in the board, man board manufacturing process. So anyway. Yeah, so the, the 100 DC caught my eye because of the size and, and lightness of it. But, you know, the, the focal length on that is 740 millimeters, I think, or 750. It's, it's in that range. Yeah. Yeah. In that. And, and then the tube itself, the actual physical size of it is, is even longer because it has the fixed dew shield. And, um, you know, I think the focuser probably sticks out a little bit. Uh, so to get that thing on an airline, you're really starting to challenge the carry-on size. And then, you know, the... When, when sizing a telescope for a mount, it, it, uh, it goes beyond just the weight of the telescope. You also have to consider that focal length. And even a light telescope that is long will require a more substantial mount. And, you know, part of this whole travel package is to keep the overall weight down. And for that reason, I, I struck the 100DC off the list. Um, I just wouldn't be able to fit it easily in a carry-on. And then I'd need a heavier mount to pack as well, which kind of defeats the purpose of a you know, a lightweight um, setup. Yeah. And when, and I, I will mention this, and this is something I kind of, cause, cause you've been looking at, at the scope and we'll get into me what I'm looking at uh, shortly, but uh, I, I was digging around a little bit on the 100 DC and I believe it actually uses the same focuser as several other of the Takahashi's uh, in the smaller aperture class. And it turns out that you can, it, it's a 1.25 inch focuser, but you can get an adapter. I think it's like the TOA, triple zero 40 or 50 adapter. I think it's a 40 and that can turn it into a, a, a focuser that can take two inch eyepieces. Um, but my understanding is it limits your, uh, your field stop and your eyepiece to around 33 or so millimeters before you're going to see some significant vignetting, which means that your outer field will, field will have 
uh, some sort of distortion uh, characteristic to it or or might be cut off a little bit maybe a little dark yeah yeah so so there is there is that so your widest field eyepiece that you can probably use would be something like you know it's not so bad a lot of people would use like a teleview 27 millimeter pan optic as their lowest power or actually see that pentax is, has re-released the 30 millimeter xw yes and you could probably use that and the the outer field on that boy uh, you'd be splitting hairs to notice the the distortion in that last uh, two or three percent of the field of view. I, I think is all you'd be uh, sort of messing around with, so that shouldn't be too bad on that. But the twenty-seven pan optic would be would be fine. I think it just has a thirty-one millimeter field stop, so well within the parameters. Right, right. Yeah. So I have finally arrived at the travel scope of choice, and that is a. Takahashi FC 76 DCU. Um, and, you know, depending when this podcast actually gets out into the wild, um, you know, this might be a little bit dated information, but Takahashi is running a sale right now too, which helps, uh, you know, get these prices a little more in line with where I want to spend. But, um, uh, you know, in addition to, to the good price on this telescope, it really seems to me anyway, for my purposes, be one of the more versatile travel scopes out there. Um, you know, at 76 millimeter focal, or sorry, uh, aperture, uh, you know, you have a lot of uh, ability to, um, you know, have a good image scale for anything that you're looking at. Uh, but with the focal length of, I think it's 570 millimeters, yep. uh, you know, you're able to get um, probably close to a four and a half degree field of view, although probably with some big knitting. Um, so you can still appreciate some wide field views, but where this thing is highly versatile um, is it also accepts the uh, the Takahashi CQ or Q extender, the 1.7 extender, to make it a uh, an f12 three inch basically, which uh, you know with my love of those long acromats really has me quite fascinated. Yeah, and I've actually been thinking about getting another telescope as well. Yeah, so why don't you tell us about your journey, your choice? So because I have already owned the Takahashi 60mm CV slash Q, which is the uh, part of the base uh, optical tube for the Takahashi 76 DCU, I had long considered getting the 76 DCU objective module, which just simply threads on. Um, and so if you already own the, uh, the 60Q, uh, you already have the 1.7x extender, which gives you the then ability with the uh, with one additional uh, module purchase. You actually have four telescopes. You can have a 60 millimeter f 5.9. You can have a 60 millimeter f 10. You can have a 76 millimeter f 7.4, and you can have a 76 millimeter f 12.6. So there definitely definitely is a, a draw to buy one thing to turn your you're basically two telescopes to four telescopes and I already have dropped a lot of money on the Takahashi already and purchased the two inch uh, ultra lightweight feather touch uh, focuser the I think it's the 2025 FTFE or something like that and it's the one that's all sort of bored out and everything and I even had that modified with an extra long uh, draw tube so it will reach focus with any eyepiece that I can put in there without any big netting at all. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful setup, and that focuser really looks sharp on it. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, 
you know, that focuser, it's the lightweight focuser. I love the look. It works extremely well. I have to say though, the lightweight one is, I mean, it's lighter weight, right? So, um, and I, and I should qualify it with this. I have not traveled as extensively with my Borg 125SD, which has the uh, regular feather touch on it. Um, that is a more substantial focuser and it's never had anything rattle loose. Um, and I've driven on a lot of back roads. Now with my uh, lightweight feather touch, I did notice after, I think it was probably after five or six plane trips that I did have to take the, uh, I think it was like a, there's like a little tool or something uh, to tighten some of the, uh, some of the pieces down. It was basically rotating in the adapter. There's an adapter that threads mm -hmm. onto the back of the telescope and then the focuser is threaded onto that somehow. Um, and it was, and it was sort of spinning around. It wasn't, it wasn't even that big a deal. Like I, it was still usable, you know, like I used it for a few weekends and then I finally figured out, Oh, I've got to take care of this. Cause it's just, uh, you know, not good to keep it in that state. It could have maybe damaged itself after a period of time. I don't know. It didn't seem like it would, but, uh, but I've never had that with my, uh, with my other Borg. Um, with the regular feather touch. So, uh, but I don't know, uh, it could be just from all the pressurization, depressurization, directed through airports, being packed in luggage, being thrown around um, many, many times, you know, I mean, yeah. that definitely is gonna push a telescope to uh, to its limits. So that's the only little, little problem I ever ran into with it. Other than that, it's just a beautiful focuser. And I only pretty much just wanna use feather touch focusers from now on. And, this podcast is neither paid for nor supported by uh, Wayne down at Feather Touch, but they are just beautiful, beautiful pieces of equipment. So yeah, they make a great product. Yeah. I think he was annoyed with me because I, I told him that he was wrong and had him set up the focuser and he sent it to me and then it didn't quite reach focus with some eyepieces. And he's like, yeah, I told you. I'm like, yeah. So then I had kind of had to pay twice, um, have it shipped back and then have another draw tube put in it and then have him ship it back to me. So it worked. It just, there was just like, I forget. It was just like one eyepiece that I have that didn't work, but it's the eyepiece that I use most when I'm traveling, which is like a low power wide scan, three thirty millimeter. And it didn't work. So that was like the main purpose of setting it all up this way. <laughs> so, well, and, and you know, that, that's kind of, you know, it happens sometimes with these high-end telescopes or sometimes even not high-end telescopes, but you know, you'll get it and, and something's just not right, whether it's collimation or something mechanical. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately you just have to send it back and, and get it tuned up and, and then you'll yeah. enjoy yeah, it. He did, he did tell me, he was like, you need it. And I was worried about Vignetic. I was just trying to make sure that I had like the widest field of view without impinging uh, from the draw tube. And what happens is that you have inside a telescope, you have a light cone, the light cone comes down to a point of focus and, uh, inside your focuser, there's this little tube that the, uh, diagonal nose piece sits in and then, uh, that kind of rides back and forth. Um, so the diameter of that, of course, because your, your two inch diagonal is going to slide into that is, uh, around more or less 50 millimeters. Um, but if you're focused too far up into that light cone, um, with that draw tube, then it's going to actually cut into that light cone and that will actually cause some, some minimal distortion around the edges. And most people don't really care about it that much, but, uh, I do. And since I'm paying for it, I didn't want to have any of that. Right. And since yep. you're customizing a little telescope, you can do whatever you want if, if you're willing to spend the money. So, 
You know, and, and that just kind of, again, it's, it sort of supports what I mentioned earlier about people, you know, everybody is an individual and, and are more sensitive or more tolerant of various aspects of, you know, telescope observing. Um, and it really is important for people, I think, just to get out there and try stuff and, and use equipment. And, and, you know, by doing that, you'll learn what you're sensitive to or what you can tolerate um, and then buy the appropriate equipment. Yeah, and I mean, some people say that they find that the secondary color on the Takahashi 60CD or the 60 millimeter in f5.9 f5 mode is is too much color for them. But I, you know, I can't say that it's ever really annoyed me that much on nights where I'm going to do a lot of planetary observing. I'm just putting the uh, 1.7 uh, X module in, and that that removes uh, you know sort of any false color for the most part. Although I did notice last week, I still could see a little like, little bit of magenta on the edge of uh, of Venus, and then on the edge of the Moon, maybe I could kind of detect like a little bit of a green cast to it. But I was using like a really inexpensive 4.7 millimeter wide field, so it could have been from that eyepiece alone, or my glasses, or something like that. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, but are you thinking about adapting the 76? And this would be the DCU. Anything about adapting it to a two-inch focuser of some sort? Well, yeah, possibly. Um, you know, initially, I don't know if I will be, if, if I'll pursue that right away. Um, and if I do, I think, I don't know, I, I guess I probably have to do a little more research. Initially, I was thinking I would just um, get the Bader two-inch click stop. Uh, basically visual back to put on to the stock Takahashi focuser that's in there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'd be able to put in my two inch diagonals, but uh, given this field stop information that you just mentioned at, earlier in the podcast uh, and how it can result in some vignetting, um, I'm not sure that I will pursue a two inch focuser right now because then I would end up having to buy new two inch eyepieces with the, with an appropriate field stop because yeah. You know, the, the smallest uh, or the, you know, the shortest focal length two inch eyepiece I have is the 31 millimeter Nagler. And I think it has like a 44 millimeter field stop. 42 um, according to Tel Aviv. 42. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, there'd be some significant vignetting um, in that telescope. And, you know, if I go back to the reason why I'm buying it, uh, this is a travel telescope. Now, when I'm traveling, I'm not taking, you know, my eyepiece, my entire eyepiece kit, because there's too much glass in there. It's too heavy. I don't need it all. Um, so typically if I'm going for like a real light kind of grab and go setup, I'm taking an inch and a quarter diagonal. Cause again, it's smaller, it's lighter. Uh, I'm taking my 24 millimeter pan optic. Uh, it'll give you the widest field of view in, in, a, in an inch and a quarter eyepiece. And then I might take one or two other eyepieces, like maybe my Leica zoom or just a couple of my fixed focal length eyepieces to, uh, you know, give me a little bit of versatility. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so funny. I might just stick with that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I just personally, like for me, like you were saying, everything is individual. And so this is, this is like a really interesting situation. So we're actually both looking at getting the same telescope. Um, <laughs> but our use case, our use cases are so different. Cause I'm like, I just can't live with one and a quarter like that. Just, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, it I'm, is limiting, right? I'm it is limiting. Buying less light somehow. Right. And it yeah. just goes against my, my, uh, my, my ethos, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Now, ideally um, I likely will end up with a two inch 
uh, focuser on there of some kind because you know it's easy it's certainly easy enough to go from a two inch uh focuser and and put an adapter in to accommodate inch and a quarter accessories if i really want that light easy grab and go setup yeah but then i still have the versatility of throwing in the two inch stuff if i want yeah i just yeah i just really want to have that like wherever possible that ultra wide field like uh well i already have this two inch uh, focuser, which I had made and, and customized for the uh, 60 CV, um, which anybody can do, you know, Wayne has them on the Starlight uh, Instruments uh, webpage. And I don't know that they're a stock item or whether he makes them when you order, but uh, anyway, um, they, are, they are available for, and I think it's the same for both these telescopes. Um, but with this situation, I can just thread it on to the, uh, to the 76, uh, whether it's in F7.5 mode or F12.6 mode, and then use my 40 millimeter as, as a finder eyepiece for that and pin around the sky. Cause I don't like to use finder scopes. I like to use a low power eyepiece and then whatever I'm gonna look at. And then if I'm gonna put power up, then I, I can just put power up to it. So, yeah. So I got a question though. What do you think about mounting it on? Like you mentioned mounting considerations, like what would you, what would you travel with? Do you have, uh, is it a stellar view? Alt-AS mount or something like that? Yeah, I have the StellarView M1 Alt-AS mount um, and it's fantastic. Uh, I love that little mount. I have it on a, just let me turn around here and grab the, the model of the tripod. So the tripod model is a, a Bogan 3046 and I'm not sure that Manfrotto still makes them. Uh, it's certainly an old tripod, but it's, it's very stable and versatile. Um, and that little mount- Can I um, see it? Can you turn on your camera so I can see it? Yeah, I think so. Let me just flip over here. to see what it looks like. I actually use the, uh, okay, let's see. Oh yeah, I have one of those, yeah. Clash, clash. Yeah, this is the same as mine. Yeah, they're not bad. They weigh like about eight or nine pounds or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, it works quite well. It's simple, you know, two adjustments for tension and away you go. Yeah. Huh. So you like that. And does it have slow motion control to see you have like one of the guiding arms on it and that sort of thing? No, no slow motion. Um, very simplistic setup. Yeah. So for mine, I actually use it like for travel on the uh, Universal Astronomics. And I, I think Larry over at Universal still makes them uh, is the Dwarf Star Mount. Um, which weighs, I believe, one pound. <laughs> yeah, that thing is so light. So it's like, literally, it is, um, it is just a pound, and it's like a pocket mount. And I, my, my original intent was to create a setup with the 60CB that was absolutely the craziest, most lightweight uh, portable system that I could make. So the telescope itself weighs uh, 3.2 pounds with the feather touch ultralight focuser and with the mount it's another pound so that's uh, like 4.2 and with a diagonal and eyepiece uh, I'm up to uh, about five pounds uh, or just a hair and I think I'm like 4.9 pounds for the telescope mount diagonal eyepiece <laughs> so when I travel that's what I take. And then usually I throw a higher power eyepiece in um, and that's it. So I'm actually just a hair over five pounds. And then what I do is uh, I, I bought tripods. Like I'll just go and buy 
you know, because you can mount a five pound telescope uh, on anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is uh, everything in as five pounds. So it's just crazy, crazy lightweight. So, oh, and the tube ring. I forget about the tube ring. Yeah, that's that's sort of in that five five pounds as well. Um, and so speaking of tube rings, because that's one thing that I kind of messaged you on because I was kind of trying to steer you away from getting the Takahashi clamshell. Yeah, yeah. So tell me more about that. Well, so when I bought mine, I kind of thought, well, I'll, I'll get it. There's two, there's two versions you can get. There's like a full clamshell. I don't know. It's like five or six inches long, or maybe not quite that big, at least four inches anyway. And uh, it really just looks like a clamshell that kind of wraps around the telescope and it's quite substantial. And, and you can either get that one or you can get what I call like a, almost like a swept back version of that where it's about uh, maybe about an inch or an inch and a half or just under two inches. And then uh, it kind of sweeps down on an angle and attaches to a bit of a plate. And then you, of course, would have your, um, your dovetail plate that you're going to put on your mount from there. Uh, Cause I thought, Oh, well that won't be that heavy because you know, it's just, you know, about a third of the size or less than the full clamshell. And I could not get over how heavy this damn thing is. It's got to weigh like, I mean, it probably weighs a pound or maybe getting close to it, uh, which doesn't sound like much when you're trying to sort of optimize for travel. Um, that's significant, especially when my whole telescope and everything else weighs, like I said, just under five pounds. Uh, and then this ends up getting me probably in reality, maybe even closer to six pounds with the, with the dovetail. Um, you know, I'm not so keen about it. So I definitely wouldn't get the full size uh, clamshell. And I believe it only has like one mounting bolt, which um, I don't, yeah. And people say, hey, it works perfect and it's Takahashi and it's true. It's never moved on me or, or anything like that. It, it has worked perfectly. Um, I just find it's a little bit heavy. And yeah, it, yeah, I don't like having just one bolt. So Many people on the Clyde Knights forum, they, they've gone to the uh, board, I think it's the 7083 or whatever. Anyway, a message to you, which are uh, rings they have for 80 millimeter telescopes. And uh, those would probably be, be a better option if you can get in touch with Hutech to send you up a pair from California. That would be my recommendation because A, they're lighter and B, although I've never seen them, I have some of the board products and they are quite excellent. Um, designed for for lightweight first durability second so they should be good enough uh, for that telescope and they come highly recommended so and in pictures you can see there's like a lot of different um, bolt holes that you can attach different things to if you so wish I don't know if you if you will or not but I know you have a lot of these old vintage telescopes and that sort of thing so you could even mount one of your other telescopes to them which that would be pretty cool so lightweight you've got two so you're gonna mount two of them to your longer dovetail um, and I feel like that would just, that would just work better. I think, I think would, so. I think it'd be a little more stable. Um, cause especially with that Q extender, you're getting to be a pretty long tube at that point. And mm. my one concern with the clamshell was just, is it stable enough with a, a, a tube that that's, that is that long? Yeah. So, cause I'm using the smaller one, I'm using the smaller clamshell and, uh, I'm using it on my F, uh, 10 when I'm using the 60 millimeter with the, with the extender and it's fine. I'm, I'm going to try it with my other one, but I'm probably going to go to something like this or maybe uh, a Prima Luca lab uh, setup of, of some sort if, if this isn't satisfactory. But yeah, I'm, 
yeah, I'm not so thrilled with with the with the clamshells. Uh, that's just my own personal preference. You could get it, me totally happy with it. Like, don't get me wrong. I just think like if you're talking about travel, and like here's the thing is, and this is the other thing, and I don't know if you even thought of this or not, is they are a little bit heavier. Okay, so that's one thing. Let's say weight isn't a concern, but like when I have to put that somewhere else, like that does not ride in the same suitcase as the telescope because I don't want that thing coming loose. I keep my dovetail bolted to it. And that just seems like a recipe for disaster to be kind of floating around in my, in my luggage case uh, that the telescope is packed in. So they always ride separate. And then it's annoying because usually I throw it in with my wife's luggage and then she's like unpacking. She's like, what the hell is this thing? You know, <laughs> Like, why is it always with my socks or something? Um, and I have to explain, yeah, that's, that's part of the telescope and they, they can't ride together. So um, yeah, so there's that consideration. So you could probably shave off at least half a pound uh, more and, and I think probably have a better uh, experience, probably a better uh, usability with the telescope in my, in my opinion. Could be wrong. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think what I'll do for now is I'll, uh, I'll order the, the telescope without the clamshell. Yeah. And then once, uh, once this COVID thing disappears and we're able to actually see each other face to face, I might give your clamshell a, just a test to see how I like it. Yeah. Uh, and then make my decision from there and determine where, if I get rings or the clamshell, but you know, I am leaning towards the rings, uh, even with my Teleview Genesis, like it has the Teleview clamshell, which yeah. holds it quite well. But um, there is a little bit of vibration, uh, especially at higher magnifications. And a lot of folks online said the first thing you need to do is ditch that clamshell and, and put some rings on there because you'll have a wider spacing and, and yeah. it just adds a little more stability to that setup then. Yeah, agreed. I mean, all my other setups, I use rings. It's so, I don't know. I, I wish I had kind of gotten the rings to begin with. I, I, I'm not even sure they're, they're available right now. In fact, like I'm probably going to send Ted uh, over at Hutech an, an email just, just to see, because I think I'm actually going to kind of move, move towards them uh, anyway. So yeah. yeah, it's one of those things. So yeah, well, that's pretty cool. So, all right. So just so you know, and I mean, I guess this would be another, uh, do you have anything else to say about about this this purchase or anything, Shane? Just excited to receive it. Um, yeah, Did you order it yet? Be, no, no. I just got an email uh, from the place that I want to order it from, and they're having some issues with uh, with shipping due to COVID. Because normally they just they're close to the United States border, so they'll yeah. travel to the other side, go to the United States to pick up the equipment and bring it back. Uh, but because of COVID and you know the issues crossing the border right now. It sounds like they won't be able to do that, which means an increased shipping cost to me. So I'm going to settle up tomorrow, but uh, tomorrow will be the order day. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Yeah. And I know uh, it's Stefan from Astronomy Plus and I've been talking to him as well. And yeah, yeah. he told me, told me the same thing, which uh, yeah, kind of sucks because I was, I'm looking at getting a mount too. And I think we're kind of running out of time to talk about that, but yeah. And he was telling me, so I was trying to get a bit of a package deal. I don't think I'm getting a package deal at this time. So, <laughs> so I'm probably just going to order. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to order it and then, and then we'll have to have to sort it out. Um, yeah. It's too bad. You know, you forget how uh, this situation is impacting uh, all the businesses and that, but you know, as well, like we want him to be safe out there and all that. Oh, stuff. for sure. Yeah. It ends yep. up costing us another, bucks or something it's uh, not a big concern so thank you for listening to the fourth episode of the actual astronomy podcast and remember try looking through your binoculars at the moon sometime you might be surprised at all the craters that you can see on it
Thank you.